The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. On top of this, there was other, there was hundreds of additional operations on, the, on our kind of self-built data set that we'd put together. Um, and in those hundreds of additional operations, we just couldn't determine um, if those killed were civilians or militants. And I think that's really an important thing to note too. And we wanted to be really transparent about that because that's also, you know, hundreds of other people in those that there's still questions around, you know, who were these people that no one was counting? And that just kind of seemed to slip away in, into uh, history without, you know, without us really understanding who they were and what happened to them. I'm Tyler McBrien, Managing Editor of Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, January 24th, 2023. In 2019, investigative journalist and photographer Lindsay Billing went to Afghanistan to investigate a very personal story, her own past. In the process, she discovered what she came to call a classified war, one with lines of accountability so obscured that no one had to answer publicly for operations that went wrong. I sat down with Lindsay to talk through her sprawling four-year investigation, published last month in ProPublica. We discussed Afghanistan's shady zero units and their relationship with the CIA, the traumatic ripple effects caused by this lack of accountability, and why the U.S. continues to rely on a strategy of night raids, which Lindsay describes as quick, brutal operations that went wrong far more often than the U.S. has acknowledged. We also discussed why Lindsay decided to tell this story when few others would. It's the Lawfare Podcast, January 24th. Lindsay Billing on Afghanistan's zero-unit night raids. Now, Lindsay, this is quite an extraordinary investigation that took several years, took you hundreds of miles across Afghanistan, speaking with hundreds of people, including a forensic investigator, a U.S. Army Ranger, families of victims, uh, Afghanistan's former spymaster, the list goes on. So first, I wanted to start with actually your story, I think, to understand the story you were telling about the zero unit night raids. Uh, we have to start with you. So first, could you tell me a bit about yourself and, and what initially brought you to Afghanistan several years ago? I had uh, gone back to Afghanistan while I was kind of researching and investigating my background and my past and my family. My father was Afghan and my mother was Pakistani and, and a refugee to Afghanistan. And 
I had gone back to Afghanistan during the course of this kind of personal investigation to look into what had happened to them and their deaths. Um, and I found that they had been killed, you know, nearly 30 years earlier and that my mother and sister had been killed in a, in a nighttime raid in a district of Nangaha province. And so it was while I was looking into that and meeting a distant relative and, and hearing what happened, you know, decades earlier, that I kind of stumbled across the zero units, which is what this investigation really focuses on. Yeah, so we'll start there. Um, what are the zero units? So the zero units were uh, squadrons of Afghan special forces, and they were funded and trained and armed and, and then supported by the CIA. And they were joined on their operations by U.S. Special Operations Forces soldiers also. And then depending on the operation or how big it was, also at times CIA advisors were joining them. And they were like officially established around 2008, but after after years of, of redesignation also. Um, and they were going after targets that were perceived as threats to the United States. So these were counterterrorism operations and they were kind of pointed at Taliban first and in, in later years, ISKP also. And so you're in Nangarhar province, you know, researching your own story, and you begin to hear about the zero units. What convinced you to to pull out that thread and and to embark on this investigative journey? Um, essentially, what what convinced you to shift your focus um, while you were there? It was one woman actually that really became the kind of like driving force behind looking into these units and and trying to take that on. Um, and I met her, her name is Mazala, and I met her in Rodat district of Nangaha province. And I was in Rodat because that's where my mother and sister had been killed. Uh, her neighbors had taken me to meet her and to talk to her um, because she was just in this, at that time, complete state of shock, really and really traumatized. And she told me that her, her two only children had been killed in a, in a night raid just three months earlier. And she was a widow, and she didn't have money, and she didn't have resources to, to really look into what happened. And she didn't know who to turn to, to get an explanation as to why her two sons had been shot that night. And so I just felt this kind of it's hard to explain like a like I felt this uh responsibility to try and um go to government officials on on her behalf um and provincial officials and say what happened to her t two sons and and try get an explanation for her and that's when I found out that the forces that had targeted her sons that that night were the zero units. And, and that was really the beginning. That was the first story that I heard um, of a night raid from, from an eyewitness and, and from a family member who'd lost loved ones. Yeah, I think one thing your reporting really drove home for me was that, you know, 
in the US, we often hear terms like collateral damage and blowback in the abstract, but these stories really drove them home in a very real way. So I was wondering if you could also tell the story about a young man named Bator, if I'm saying his name correctly. In your reporting, um, I believe you were speaking with someone and and he got a call that uh, one of his students or a student had just experienced an incident days before. Could you tell me about meeting Bator and, and his story and then you know, maybe in the telling of that, describe how these night raids uh, are conceived and then executed. Sure. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I was meeting, I was meeting a former university professor, and we were talking about these zero unit operations. And he had been kind of, in a way, like in his own way, cataloging uh, zero unit operations that had that his students had told him about when their family members had been targeted. And and he was telling me about this and he had this notebook and he had been listing them all um, and trying trying to keep track of them all. And he got a call um, from a, a professor at the University of Nangahar um, saying that Bartur was, hadn't come into classes recently or for a few days and then when he had that, he was uh, distracted and he felt like something was wrong or something was going on with him. And so I went to the university to, to meet him. And Bartur told me how his two brothers had been killed in a, in a zero unit operation. And this was uh, by the O2 unit, um, which is one of the four known zero-unit squadrons. Um, and the O2 is based out of uh, Jalalabad in Nangahar, and they operate in that region. Um, and all four of the units operating in different parts of the country. And um, he was just completely um, like Mazala also, and like all of the eyewitnesses I met, but um, just completely traumatized and confused. And um, it was a really difficult meeting in a way because I felt a lot of responsibility with with how to conduct these interviews and, and conversations with people um, with a level of care to, to what had happened, mostly because a lot of these families had, hadn't spoken to anyone about these raids and, and what had happened. And uh, they were also, this was, had started in 2019 under the former government or the Republic government. And there was a lot of fear around these units. They were very secretive and people were scared to talk about them. They didn't, they were fearing repercussions of being targeted. And yeah, I mean, Bato is this really young guy. He w- he was 22 and he just was completely at a loss of of how to move forward after what had happened with his brothers because he felt like when they were alive that they had supported him and he could go to university and now he was you know kind of alone and he he had told me that they were a poor family they couldn't move away from the home that was targeted and uh, he was really telling of a, a kind of trauma that doesn't go away after an operation, which is this fear that comes every night afterwards of nightmares and flashbacks 
and it, this this feeling that it's not over when the operation's over. And he also spoke to what some of the other eyewitnesses and, and survivors who I met spoke to, which is this, um, you know, feeling that these operations were were really kind of turning people like him who had supported the Republic government, turning them away away from that government because their loved ones had been incorrectly uh, targeted in these operations. Reading your story, you really get a sense of the scale of the trauma. Um, You know, when you're speaking, I'm reminded of the one woman you spoke to who had lost her three sons and her son-in-law, I believe, who after they were killed, she simply washed them and, and shrouded them and um, I think the quote that really drove this home for me was when she said, not once did I think I had I had any other options that any Afghan official, court, or anyone would believe me. Could you talk a bit about what sense of accountability the families of the victims had, if any? Yeah, I mean, they they really felt like everyone that I would meet and I would say, did you go to the provincial officials or who have you talked to about this or has anyone from the media come to talk with you after this operation. And there's just this feeling that kept coming up in this kind of pattern with all of the people that I was meeting, which was that when they would go to uh, like provincial centers to try and talk to officials about these zero unit operations, they would be told it was a mistake or or their their brothers or their family members had been incorrectly you know targeted or misidentified um as terrorists and they were told that the these are the zero units and they have their own intelligence and they do their own operations and this is out of our hands and sent sent away without an explanation and there is this feeling that there was no consequence uh, for when these operations did go wrong. And and she was really just, I really felt for her because there's this aspect as well, which is that a lot of times it was the women who were eyewitnesses or women who were survivors of these operations that were the least talked to. And I went to, you know, more than 30 raid sites and we looked into hun- hundreds of night raid operations. And it was always um, when I would be talking with people about who was injured or who had been killed on these operations, that I would have to go back to them and say, were any women also injured or killed in these operations? And really like highlight that because often women were left out of the, the tallies and, and left out of the, the list of people who had been injured. Yeah, I'm actually um, very interested in in some of these site visits. Can you tell me what what that felt like, what it was like visiting the sites, how you found the sites? And then also, I'm also curious about, you know, people's willingness to speak to you, especially after having gone through a traumatic experience and um, one that under which they still live in fear, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, um, when I started this story or this in this investigation I decided that this was what I was going to look into the the first person I called was a man I I just met who who was a forensic pathologist and his name's Mohammed and I said I really 
like, um, I really need your help on this because we're going to have to somehow work our way across Nangaha and collect as much evidence as we can and somehow verify the dead and verify those who had been killed. And he was a forensic pathologist um, at the time. He was a government employee, so he had access to a government database uh, in terms of forensics and the statistical department that I didn't have. And he was uh, originally from Nangaha, and and he was really ready ready to go on this with me, and he really wanted us to to do this together. Um, so we drove out and we started. We started first by collecting every report we could find of an O2 uh, night raid that had, you know, allegedly resulted in civilian casualties. And then we went to uh, human rights organizations and we said, like, are you, are you collecting, uh, are you cataloging um, zero unit operations? And then we got given a really comprehensive list in terms of the details in it of zero unit operations with the dates and the times and the locations and that kind of became the place that we started working off and so we had these we had that list we had the human rights organizations we had news reports and then we had loads of people just coming in with individual accounts and so then we decided to start uh, driving out to to these raid sites and many of them you know had you know, the properties and the compounds that had been uh, targeted in these night raids, you know, still had bullet holes in the walls and the structures were still damaged. And this is something that we were also able to see, you know, from satellite imagery as well that we were working with, particularly operations that had an airstrike in tandem with them um, because the zero units were able to call in um, U.S. air power. And these were huge operations they were 80 soldiers going out you know in in huge convoys and with helicopters and of the 80 soldiers we I learned that 10 to 12 of them were American as well and so they they were it was really to people living in those areas in different in different districts of Nanga province and and remote areas really knew who the zero units were and so there was a lot of talk about when an operation had happened and so we just started by just visiting people and talking to as many people as we could and collecting as much evidence and and as we could and, and verifying the deaths and going to coroners and, and hun- also going to hospitals and, and health clinics who we'd heard that uh, people who were injured had been taken to after a night raid um, and then we heard that they had later died uh, in these facilities and doctors there were telling us no U.S. or Afghan official ever came to the hospital to ask them who had died. Um, and I think that's the point when I really realized that whatever count or tally that the U.S. or Afghan government had was missing so many of these because even for me, everyone that I would meet would tell me about another night raid and, and it was it really felt overwhelming at some points and, and almost like endless. Yeah, I was quite impressed with um, Mohammed, the the forensic pathologist with whom you worked in, in sort of how game he was or how keen he was to join 
I think you know he, you mentioned a quote by him that he simply said, "We have to share the truth," and and then joined you, um, which I think speaks to you know how important this story is to be told. But I want to now turn to sort of I guess your count or your tally that you were able to establish, and I understand that you know in in accounting for the night raids, you know it seemed like it's only really possible to establish a floor or a minimum. But what's the scale of the night raids that you uncovered? Yeah, I mean, it's a really good point when you talk about the scale and and the minimum. You know, we were just looking at one of four known zero units. We were just looking at the O2. And we were only focused on a a four-year period. So we started um, in 2017 and we went until we we were counting until July um, 2021, which was the last night raid that I found by the O2 unit right before right before the U.S.'s exit in August. And in that four-year period, um, we found at least 452 civilians had been killed, and that was in 107 raids. And this is, you know, certainly an undercount. And there are on top of this there was other there was hundreds of additional operations on the, on our kind of self-built data set that we'd put together um and in those hundreds of additional operations we just couldn't determine um if those killed were civilians or militants and i think that's really an important thing to note too and we wanted to be really transparent about that because that's also you know, hundreds of other people in those that there's still questions around, you know, who were these people that no one was counting and that just kind of seemed to slip away in, into uh, history without, you know, without us really understanding who they were and what happened to them. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Yeah, and, and before we get into more explicit questions of accountability, I think um, I'd like to take a step back and talk a bit about the relationship between CIA slash the United States, and then these Afghan soldiers. And I'd like to turn to your interview that you had with Ramtola Nabil, the former director of the National Director of Security in Afghanistan, who sort of described to you uh, maybe a, a quid pro quo or a, what I think in his 
estimation, a mutually beneficial relationship between the CIA and the, and the zero units. Could you talk a bit about you know these intelligence sharing relationships and and a bit about you know who goes on the raids as you mentioned before? So to get at culpability, you know this relationship, I guess, between the CIA and zero units. The zero units were Afghan special forces soldiers, but they were initially established and set up by the CIA and they were funded and trained and equipped by them. And the CIA went on to support them. The Afghan intelligence agency or the NDS comes in because there was a point at around 2012 when the the ownership or there was a transition where it was passed from the CIA to that they would then fall under the NDS umbrella. And so I wanted to meet the former director of the Afghan intelligence agency because he was there at the time that these units went through this transition and then were fell nominally under the NDS or under the Afghan intelligence agency. But that said, even as he notes that the the US and, and the CIA still had a role in these units in terms of intelligence and in terms of targeting packages. And they they still were supporting the units, but they just had an Afghan face, essentially. And so there's this kind of relationship where, I mean, I would go to Afghan officials who would say, the U- well, this is U.S. intelligence and, and they are funding these units and they are supporting the units. And then from a U.S. side, they they look like they fall under the NDS and these are Afghan special forces. So there's this kind of split between the two, but where responsibility really came down to them both because even, even after this transition, there was this agreement that the operations and intelligence would be shared um, between the two, that the... Afghan intelligence agency would be made aware if there was operations and that they would be brought in on those conversations. So it's it was became this really kind of complicated setup and structure which really left a very confu- it was a very confusing world in terms of accountability when these operations go wrong and and when they kill civilians. Yeah, and speaking of the intelligence, you know, I think as you mentioned, some of these night raids, I guess, were a success in in the sense of um, they, you know, apprehended or killed their intended target. But you know, that's not, not what we're talking about here. We're talking about the collateral damage and the civilian deaths, which seem to happen almost more often than not. So, why was the intelligence so flawed, from your sense? I mean, one of the one of the biggest questions that. I had like over the last few years while I'm looking into it is exactly that. How can you have this, the CIA and the U S intelligence get it wrong? Like how can the, you know, self-proclaimed most cutting edge, um, you know, equipment in the world or, or just, you know, that had had huge advantages with, technical intelligence how can it get it wrong and so I went to I started looking for people to talk to who were part of um, the U.S. side of processing that intelligence and just uh, super 
fascinating and quite you know damning conversations much of which didn't actually make it into the story in the end but really kind of came down to this lack of understanding of Afghanistan and and a kind of lack of um, cultural awareness or, or understanding of who the militants that the U.S. was looking for, who they were. And so I would hear, I started hearing like, you know, stories of, of what these people were being told to look out for from, you know, overhead image and footage. For example, one would be, one was um, that, you know, if a guy was, right, driving a, a motorbike, that he was Hakani, or if he had a certain um, turban, that he was Taliban, or they would see, you know, 50 people inside a compound and think that that was a terrorist or bomb-making factory, and it turned out to be a wedding. I mean, I just kept hearing all of these kind of personal memories from, from people who um, ha- whose job it was to, to look at overhead imagery and take the intelligence gathered by local informants on the ground and make a determination if that was someone that should be targeted. And, you know, they say multiple sources of intelligence, uh, whether that's a informant on the ground and overhead imagery or a voice recording. But, you know, these people that I was talking to were telling me that even with all of these different sources of intelligence or different pieces of information they were getting, that there was still this lack of understanding on on who they were targeting and they were getting it wrong. And then on the other side, you have soldiers on the ground that were saying, we weren't going after HVTs or or high value targets at one point. We were just going after uh, sympathizers or people who were deemed associated with terrorist groups. Um, and by whatever determination that <laughs> associated meant. And so there was, it was going wrong for like several reasons. And, and there was these failures of intelligence that were happening. But, but something that was really troubling is that the, when I was hearing about this, it wasn't only just from 2019 um, over the last few years, some of these, accounts that I was hearing of when it was going wrong were going way back and there was no change throughout. There was no change to these patterns of failure where they were like, oh, well, maybe we need to change how we're judging um, who we're looking for. You know, there was this repeated pattern of, of getting it wrong along the way. Yes. Speaking of way back, um, I think listeners who are familiar with the history of U.S. Special Forces operations Going back to Vietnam, uh, the Vietnam War, um, I think this may sound like an echo or, or they may be having a sense of deja vu. Um, y- your story gets into a bit of the history of the night raid as a strategy or the kill capture um, strategy. Could you talk a bit about that history and the continued justifications the United States uses f- for pursuing this strategy in terms of the trade-offs between air raids versus night raids, for example? Yeah, I mean... We talk a little bit about it in the piece, this, this kind of, like you say, this pattern going way back. And we, we started by looking at killer capture operations used 
against the Viet Cong in, in South Vietnam back in 1967, where the CIA had the Phoenix program. Even at that time, the CIA executive director, William Colby, noted to, to Congress that even then they couldn't differentiate between enemy insurgents and neutrals. And this is something that like went on, you know, then the night raids or killer capture raids were used in, in Iraq and they were met with the same kind of claims of successes from a, from a U.S. side or from a U.S. military side that these operations were going well and that they were successfully targeting the insur- insurgency but they were also getting a blowback from the local population. And then the same in Afghanistan when the night raids came to Afghanistan. And again, the U.S. claimed that they were getting major successes in targeting terrorists. And in our reporting, um, we note that that wasn't what was happening. And it was coming out that actually, you know, huge numbers of people who were being detained as terrorists were, were then being released um, because it was found out that there, there wasn't enough evidence to say that they were that they were terrorists. And so I think that throughout history, this idea of using this night raid strategy and this idea of partnering with local forces to, to do it with you has had like repeated failures and repeated failures of intelligence. And yet it's something that the U.S. and that the CIA keeps using as one of the tools in their toolbox, in their counterterrorism toolbox, even. Throughout your story, you call these night raids a classified war. I wanted to get into a bit of what you meant by that term. Yeah, I think it's because I just felt like we, what these were, were this really kind of murky area where they were not U.S. military counterterrorism operations. These were covert operations, and these were Title Fifty, and there's this whole. These were the CIA, and it is a really, really difficult world to kind of <laughs> penetrate and and really investigate. Um, precisely because they are classified, they're classified operations. So any kind of investigations or anything related to these operations would would the oversight of those would only really be available to the the US intelligence committees and, and the Senate and House and so even though they were Afghan special forces and even though they nominally fell under the NDS they were set up under the CIA umbrella and with that came this complete like secrecy and and difficulty for anyone to really penetrate. Yeah. And speaking of Title 50, I think much of what you're describing here is not illegal under US law, but rather may fall into a legal gray area or slip through a loophole of a law that was intended to protect against abuses like these. Could you talk a bit about the so-called Leahy Law and why these night raids may not be covered by the Leahy Law? Yeah, so the Leahy law like prohibits the US military 
from providing training and equipment to foreign security forces that commit human rights abuses. But it doesn't cover um, U.S. intelligence agencies. So it it also, I found, doesn't cover uh, units like the zero units. And it applies only to congressional appropriations um, that fund the state and defense departments. And so I reached out to Senator Patrick Leahy, who the law was named after, to ask him why why it was that these units could kind of circumvent or kind of fell outside of this law. And he agreed that there needed to be an amendment to the law just as a matter of policy or of U.S. policy that these overseas you know, military forces that work with any U.S. government agencies should really fall under um, the Leahy Law, which is not the case right now. And so this is why units like the zero units who who were supported by the CIA, you know, didn't fall under it. And just there's this huge like legal loophole in in what was covering them. Yeah. And you mentioned throughout the story that, you know, this is an effort that you felt that no one had done before at this scale, at least, and that no one would ever be able to do again. And I'm curious why you think no one has been able to tell this story before? Um, I think that there's definitely media has has spoken up about um, and reported on um, the zero units in the past. But when I started uh, this investigation in, in early 2019, a few months earlier, the, the New York Times had, had published a story looking at the, the strike forces and as I continued this investigation, other other stories came out, and and local media had also at times reported on them. Although there was also at that time, I'll note a lot of areas that were really inaccessible for reporters and media to go to, just because of the increase in fighting that was going on, and there were parts that were never visited, you know, by reporters and and raids that were never looked into. But the reason that I say that is because part of part of the story was really trying attempting to catalog a kind of tally of just how many civilians had been killed by just one of the units. And that's something that even the human rights organizations I went to um, said was nearly an impossible task. And their numbers were... um, at times, there would be months that they won't even report, like recording operations by the zero units. And there was no consistent or comprehensive tally of how many people had been killed by the O2. So that was really one of the things that I, I was taking on. And then I say that it is something that can't be done again, just because there was places that I visited during the reporting that that no longer um, exists. Like some of the statistical departments that I went to, um, who were recording, who had been recording the operations and the deaths, it was all analog. Um, so this was like boxes of, of paperwork that Muhammad and I had spent hours and hours and hours sifting through. And I remember in 
August 14th, right before the Taliban moved into Kabul, Muhammad had gone back to Jalalabad because he'd called me and he said, um, the Taliban, are, they're going to be in Kabul tomorrow. And we had like, we have to get all these documents from the statistical department because when the Taliban come in, they're going to be, they're going to be destroyed. And in the end, he was right because the Jalalabad statistical department documents were completely burnt, like within a week. And lots of the news, uh, news sites and news reports that I'd once looked at and, to try and find corroborating accounts uh, of these operations as well um, were deleted and and the Afghan news agencies who had written up these reports were were no longer operating. And so there was these, that's why in terms of gathering a lot of this information is just not possible right now. Another reason is that Many of the uh, survivors or, or families of those killed that I had visited have, have moved home and are no longer in the same locations where the raids happened. So just so many changes have really happened within the last year and a half, basically. Hmm. I'm curious what's next for you with this investigation. Um, and I apologize in advance for asking after you know four-year investigation, asking you already what's next. But... I'm curious, you know, where where you're headed with any follow up investigations, and and then also what you hope uh, may come from from this reporting. Yeah, it's a good question. It's um, right now is it it might sound a bit strange, but I feel like I have the hardest job is is now that the story is finished because I am going to members of Congress and and basically saying to them. The response to this story has been immense, but everyone keeps asking me, what is Congress going to do? Are they going to make amendments to the law? Are they going to investigate these units to to ensure that these types of failures and, and d- don't happen again? Um, so I'm basically going, I mean, initially I'd gone to, to 42 members of Congress and, and asked them a lot of questions about <laughs> the zero units. Um, I reached out to them a while back. So now I'm going back to them and I'm essentially saying, in, do you care? <laughs> and in a way, when you put out, when we put out the story, we're asking the American public, do you care? Um, as well, because this is a, a war that was fought in America's name. Um, so while we have published, I have a, a lot more work to do and I'm getting responses from people. And so I do hope that we 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 hope to do a, a follow-up with these responses from Congress. Um, I think one of the important things that I want people to take away from the story is that this is, uh, you know, the U.S. has left Afghanistan now. And for many people, they'll say, well, that's, you know, Afghanistan's finished. But this is something that, you know, could be used in a, in a new country or, um, against a new threat, this night raid strategy and these failed tactics. And there really wasn't like a true reckoning of what happened in Afghanistan. And I really feel that this is going to be used in new countries and you're going to see the same fallout that you have in Afghanistan if, if something doesn't change and if there isn't a change to the oversight of these kinds of operations and and what the human rights implications of them are. Lindsay, thank you so much for taking the time. 
Thank you for having me, Tyler. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other shows, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath. Our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. Check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patia Howell. And your audio engineer this episode was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening.